Father, we thank you this morning for the shedding of your blood for these, your precious children. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. By now, your Bibles probably open themselves to the book of Romans. I'm going to ask you to fight back with your pages this morning and go back a couple of books to the Gospel of John. Right back to chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. And I'll read a few verses, beginning with verse 29. And so we read, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who's preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said again, Behold, the Lamb of God. O Father, in Jesus' name I pray you reveal to us the significance of this title of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Blessed Lamb of God. Amen. I think it's appropriate this through this season to talk about these subjects, and so I digress for a couple of weeks from our course we've been on in the book of Romans, but I think it is a good digression, and we should be blessed by it. Behold the Lamb of God. There's John baptizing by the River Jordan, and Jesus walks up. Did you find it interesting that he said, I didn't know him? And I read it. He said that twice. He said, I didn't know him. I don't don't think it means I didn't know who he was because they were cousins and their parents knew each other and rejoiced together when they were both being born. But he did not know him any more than his mother and his brothers and sisters and the people of Nazareth knew him as the son of God that he was. If you remember, um, very poignantly, he went into the synagogue at Nazareth where he was known And uh, they would turn to wrath at his preaching when he read from Isaiah and said, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. Um, So they did not know him, but at this time, God sent a sign to John. Now, I don't know if the dove was real or not. I don't know if he saw the dove or if, if there was a real dove or if God gave him the image of a dove. You can't see the Holy Spirit, but John, the prophet, can see things that not everyone sees. And so the dove descended, and then he knew this was the man. And it seems to have come as some sort of surprise to John in some ways, knowing him as just a man about town, perhaps, a good man. But uh, I wanted to pick up on that, because as I read that, I'm always taken by the fact that he said I did not know him. But a number of things just happened to prompt this strange announcement from John the Baptist. It's kind of a strange announcement. A man comes walking down the street. Now, Maybe you don't know this, but Jesus was a 200-pound man. Did you know that? He was a 200-pound man. 
And we know that because they brought 100 pounds of spices to anoint his body, and they always brought half the weight of the man. So there you have it, quick math. So he was a pretty substantial person. Uh, Some of us are in that category. But he uh, comes down the street, and he calls him a lamb. Now, in my day, you didn't call guys lambs. But he said, behold, the lamb of God. Now, from the previous passage, we read that John was assuring all his questioners, his inquisitors, I like to call them, of who he was not. He said, I am not the Christ. Now, this bold and clear pronouncement tells us a few things. Number one, there was an imminent sense among the people of Israel at the time that the long-awaited Messiah would come in their lifetime. They seemed to be waiting for this very thing. And we read, now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John was much more interested in telling you who he was not than telling you who he was. And so we, we read this. They questioned him. Are you Elijah? They said. There was a prophecy that Elijah would precede Jesus and, uh, or precede the Messiah, I should say. And he said, I am not Elijah. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? John wasn't all that interested in talking about himself. Now, you might may know that in another passage, Jesus said, John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come. That doesn't make him Elijah, you understand? He's the Elijah. He's the one that's prophesied to come. All right? Um, But this is so often the way we approach the gospel. We ask all these non-sequitur questions, these questions that really don't matter. Uh, We begin by asking questions that pertain to our preconceived notions about heavenly things our preconceived notions about the purposes of God. It seems the people on the street, and certainly people in the media, know so much about God today, it amazes me. All kinds of preconceived notions about what he is, and if he exists at all, this is what he would be like, people like to say. People are interested in any new thing that happens that attracts our attention, and it's obvious to us, as it was obvious to them, that there was something special and something unique about this strange prophet of the wilderness. And they loved him. When, by, the, by the time this event happened, John was well known. And he was kind of a crusty guy. I mean, he lived in the wilderness. He ate strange things, or things that are strange to us. Um, he dressed strangely. But they loved him, and they trusted him, and they believed he was a prophet. And so he stood there in, in their midst, and he's clothed in camel hair, very famously, as you know, in a leather belt, His diet was locusts and wild honey. Remember that? Now, that seems very strange to us, but I want you to know that was an Arabian delicacy of the time. People did eat locusts and still do over there, by the way. And the honey, I think, isn't really all that strange at all. But that's quite strange that that's all he would eat. He took on this unique ministry method that was baptism. No one else was doing this. There were other ritual washings and things. But this baptism unto repentance, prepare ye the way of the Lord. So he had this strange method of of ministry, and it was meant as a cleansing ritual, and it was attached to a personal testimony of repentance from sin. So you had to acknowledge you were a sinner to go before John and receive this baptism, and people flocked to it. Now, it was more symbolic than efficacious. You know what that means? It's, it's a symbol. 
of cleanliness. It doesn't really clean you. And John knew that. And he made a distinction between the symbol of being cleansed from the reality of it. And so he said, I baptize you with water, but one's coming after you who'll give you the real baptism. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now the water cleanses you outwardly, but the Holy Spirit renews you inwardly. The water baptism doesn't give you power, but the Holy Spirit does. And when I mean that, when I say that, I mean power to live for God. Power to be true to your confession of sin and repentance. And so John went to places where there was a lot of water so he could perform his ritual. We read from John 3.23. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. And so we can see that with all the questions, John said more about who he is not than who he is. However, he does add this one descriptive note from ancient prophecy. He said, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. That's a prophet from Deuteronomy 18 that Moses said would come. Uh, He's none of these things, but he is the voice. He's the voice. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John is the herald. He's the announcer. He's the voice. He's there to declare that uh, the Christ when he walks upon the scene, upon the stage of history. Now, would not a king be preceded by a herald? Wouldn't someone say, make way for the king? If you'd waited all your life, if your every relative, living and dead, had waited all their lives long to see the day of the Lord, would you not expect a reliable herald, a God-ordained prophet, to introduce him and to announce his appearance upon the stage? You would expect it. And that was what John said he was. Nothing else. You know, if, you, if you're very careful and you're reading, you realize John never did any stupendous miracles of any sort. He didn't perform miracles. All he did was he came with a message and a method. He baptized and he said, repent. Now, you may remember from our Reformation play. You knew I was going to go here, didn't you, when I said that announcing thing? Henry VIII, in our Reformation play, he comes out in pomp and splendor, right? There's music and gaiety. There's drummers before him. There's maids throwing rose petals um, on on his path. There's a trumpet blast, there's, um, there's swordsmen and cardinals preceding him, and then there's a herald who comes out and he says, make way for the king, Henry VIII of England, France and Ireland, and the queen, Anne Boleyn. By the way, if you want to see the play, it is on our website on YouTube. But kings come with pomp and splendor and people to herald them and announce them and blow trumpets, and sing songs, and throw rose petals, but not the Lord. He came differently. But that's what's happening here near the Jordan in our text. But for one thing, the Lord does not come with pageantry. He doesn't come in splendor. He doesn't come with a palace guard of priests and mighty men. He's not coming with music and cheering and noble titles. Yet to the initiated, friends... To those who have been paying attention to the sacred pronouncements of his presence down through the ages, he comes to keep an ancient appointment. He too has a role to play. 
He too has prophecy to fulfill. He comes as a sacrifice. He comes to give his life a ransom for many. He comes to drink the cup of sorrows that his father has mixed for him. And so the Baptist must come to announce him as he is. And I've always wondered if Jesus would have been better received if the Baptist had said, Behold the Lion of Judah who takes away the kings of the world. Behold the Son of God who comes with legions of angels. But who could have believed such things once they saw the Savior when he comes out in sandals and a tunic? He was just a man, a familiar person, son of a carpenter, plain, plainly dressed. And so the, the Baptist announces him in the role he's come to play. He came not to take life, but to offer his own for the sake of sinful humanity. He didn't come to conquer the world. He said that. The world's still here. He didn't come to conquer it. He came to save it. He didn't come to rule it, friends. Not then. The next time he comes, it will be different. But he didn't come to rule it. He came to rid it of the guilt of sin. He didn't even rid it of sin, if you think about it. But the guilt of sin that we all, who came to know him, had. He came as a payment. He came as an acceptable sacrifice to God. He came as he was the Lamb of God. That was his title. This is the only place in Scripture where it's used, and it's used twice. Now, I've always wondered if he would have been better received if he came as someone else, but they don't even ask what the prophet means by such a strange announcement. They don't even ask. I would have thought someone said, why did you call him a lamb? He explained himself with this doctrinal distinction, though. He explained the difference between him and the Christ. He said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It's he who's coming after me. He's preferred before me. His sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. And this is where it seems we all get stuck regarding our understanding of spiritual things. You see, Jesus is a baptizer too, just like John. They didn't know that. Many of us maybe don't realize that. Jesus is a baptizer. As far as we know, he never baptized anyone in water. He's a baptizer with the Holy Spirit. John was the agent of baptism. Water was his medium. Jesus was the agent of his baptism, and the Holy Spirit was his medium. John immersed you in water. Jesus immerses you in the Holy Spirit. And the the one is the symbol of the other, and the one is the reality of the symbol. But what's always amazed me is that in this culture that's immersed, another word for immersed is baptized. This culture is immersed. It's baptized in symbolism. And they all have a hard time separating symbol from substance. In fact, a good portion of Paul's epistles are given to explain the difference between the symbols and the substance. Symbols point to something, but they do not stand in place of the thing pointed to. John was a type of Christ, but he wasn't the Christ. And so John said, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. Maybe that's what John meant in Matthew 3.14 when he said to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. Maybe that's what he meant. 
So in the midst of all this symbolism, in the midst of all these preconceived notions about the coming of Messiah, they seem to have missed something that I'm determined that we do not miss this morning. And so we read again from the text these, these words. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said it twice in two days. So let's see if we can put ourselves in the crowd of ancient Israel that day. They are an expectant people. They're awaiting their Messiah. It's obvious that they know little about him. They know little about how to recognize him when he comes. We know that when he proclaimed himself, even to his own family and neighbors from Nazareth, that they could not make the connection between the man they saw in Jesus of Nazareth and their preconceived notions about the long-awaited Messiah. But John, whose sole ministry was to announce him, to prepare the people for his coming, he used this strange figure of speech. Behold the Lamb of God. One more symbol for a people immersed in symbology. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I can hardly believe that as we try to put ourselves in their place that this pronouncement seemed to have little effect on them at all. No one asked the what of God? Where's their natural curiosity to query the pronouncement of the prophet of their time in fulfilling his one appointed task to point out the Messiah? His one task is to point out the Messiah, and he calls him a lamb. But because he seems to insist on this description of him, the moment is all but lost among the religious expectations of a blind and foolish leadership of the day. It seems all but lost. And what's even more amazing to me is that this is a culture that's immersed in symbolism pertaining to sheep. They're immersed in symbolism pertaining to sheep and goats and lambs and flocks. Lamb culture is sacrificial culture. They are the poor and unwitting creatures that are used to assuage the wrath of God from their society. Friends, every day in Jewish society, two lambs were sacrificed in the temple. Every single day of the calendar year. Let's go back to Exodus and read about it. From chapter 29, Moses gives these instructions to the priests in the tabernacle. No temple yet, right? In Moses' time, that wasn't for 500 more years in Solomon's time. But there's the tabernacle in the wilderness. And God says to Moses, now this is what you shall offer on this altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day. That's a lot of lambs. But the instructions go on, and the details get more and more. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil, one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer with it the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning for a sweet aroma. And then the Lord says this, you're sacrificing all these lambs, one in the morning, one in the evening, every single day. And what does the Lord say? And there I will meet with the children of Israel. Where the lamb is, is where the Lord will meet with the children of Israel. 
And the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. They'll know I'm the Lord because we're sacrificing the lamb. And no one caught on. I mean, really, it seems not even the disciples really caught on. He used some very straightforward language leading up to this. And still people were surprised when the one who came in triumph, as we talked about on Palm Sunday, if you will, the 10th of Nisan in their calendar, he came in triumph, was only five days later in their counting, in our counting it's four days because they count the 10th as one day, he was hung on a cross and sacrificed for the sins of Israel. And so from of old, from the time of the tabernacle in the wilderness, lambs were slaughtered for the sins of the people. Two a day, one in the morning, one in the evening, accompanied by the slaughter was this promise of God. And there I will meet with the children of Israel. I'll meet where the lamb is slaughtered. In the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And they shall know that I'm the Lord their God. They shall know me because the lamb was properly sacrificed before me. Where was the devotional remembrance of this? Of the significance of these lambs and sheep culture throughout their generations? The statement seemed to go right by them without any further interrogation of the prophet concerning it. It seems a very strange thing to me. Where was all the Passover ritual in their childhood memories? Friends, if there ever was a teaching ritual, it was Passover. It was to teach something. It was to rehearse something. The children, part of it is the children got to ask questions. It was all part of the ritual for the children to ask questions pertaining to the significance of the ritual. From Exodus we read this, And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? that you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Very anciently, the Passover ritual, in all of its detail, was given to the Israelites. It's really the first day of the Passover. It's the day. It's the tenth. It's when they choose the lamb. That's the triumphal entry, the tenth of Nisan. It's always been an amazement to me that even the disciples of Jesus did not seem to make the connection between the Lord Jesus and the Lamb of God. The whole culture goes back to their slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. It even goes back to Abraham 500 years before Moses. Isaac asked that famous question. We read from Genesis. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? The question was asked from the very beginning of covenant history. Where is the lamb? And that day Jesus walked up to the Jordan. The voice in the wilderness said, behold the lamb. And it seems no one picked up on it. So I'll ask you to remember what these children of Israel at the Jordan that day did not seem to remember. 
Abraham's fam- famous reply, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. I've always been amazed by the fact that even at the cross when the Lamb of God was offered up to the Father for the sins of his beloved, that no one seemed to recall the trial of Abraham, the father of their covenant. No one even said, is this the Lamb God provided? Where God said to Abraham, take now thy son, thy, thine only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall show you. Did not every Israeli heart know that the very mount upon which the awesome temple of Herod stood in all of its splendor was known to them as the site of Abraham's plight some 2,000 years ago? Same mountain, same thing happening. A man sacrificing the son of promise. Did the children of Israel forget the two first sons of man? They came with their offerings. So we read from Genesis. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. Friends, four people in the universe, and one is a keeper of sheep. Cain, his brother, was a tiller of the ground, and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. Behold the Lamb of God. This is your culture, and it's being fulfilled now in your presence the lamb that was symbolized since Abel is now on the scene. And I'm announcing his arrival. Friends, when the lamb of God bled the ground red at Calvary, did anyone recall what God said to Cain after he spilled the blood of Abel? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Did anyone even think of that? The symbols were all there pointing to this moment. These were a people immersed in the blood of sheep and goats. And yet they could not see their Messiah would come as a sacrificial lamb, as the Lamb of God. Did they forget that both Moses and David were sheep herders? These people are immersed in sheep culture. Even the close disciples of Jesus From some texts, they came all the way with the Lord to the steps of Golgotha and did not understand why he had to die. You would think at that moment, someone would say, that's why he called him the lamb. All the lambs were being sacrificed that very day, that very moment, in the temple. Every pilgrim family came and gave their perfect lamb to the priest. Thousands and thousands of lambs sacrificed in the ritual way. But yet outside the camp, the true Lamb of God that all these things pointed to all these centuries was dying for their sins, and most of them missed it. The Lord said to Moses, on the 10th of this month, that's today, in their calendar, on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They all kill together at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts 
and on the lintel of their houses where they eat it. You remember all of this. Seems they forgot or just didn't put it together. That's how strong our presuppositions can be about godly things. They can be so strong that we can actually miss the whole thing. They didn't expect a meek, self-sacrificing Messiah. It seems they didn't expect that. Why did no one seem to remember? Why do so few of us make the connection that the Passover of God was rehearsed until the day the Lamb of God came to die? And so we read this from Exodus. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. They were practicing it that very week in Jerusalem. And you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Now you would think that every heart would have wondered during the whole three years of Jesus' ministry why the prophet called him the Lamb of God. You would think that as he entered the city of Jerusalem on the 10th of the same month, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, according to Zechariah's famous prophecy, that every heart might inquire as to the significance of the moment. There he is, just like they said he'd come. And the people caught on for a time. Enthusiasm wears off. All those people that cheered Hosanna in the highest, behold the son of David, weren't there four days later when he was going to the cross. Be careful of exuberance. It, it wears off. Joy is not supposed to be just a trend and just a fashion. Neither is truth. You would think that every heart would have wondered the whole three years of his ministry, why did he call him the Lamb of God? And then when he dies at the stroke of Passover, you'd think they would have noticed. Jesus of Nazareth, friends, like the paschal lambs, was the firstborn male of his mother. He enters the city on the 10th of Nisan. The Lamb of God was chosen from among the flock on that day. For the next four days, he was inspected for defect. The questions of Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, priests and Lawyers and scribes found no fault with him at this ritual by the secular governor Pontius Pilate and the indigenous king Herod Antipas. He was pronounced without fault. He was the perfect lamb. We read this morning, they asked the question about taxes. And he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. And then you get this little postscript that says, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. He made fools of us because of our presuppositions. Boy, did they want him, and sometimes I want him to say, no, you don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> Jesus fit the description of the pastoral lamb from his birth on. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in the man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. The governor and the king said he was innocent. The inspection was over. And so every command of God concerning the Passover lambs from Moses' time to Jesus' time was fulfilled in Christ. He is the Lamb of God. He's the firstborn of his mother. 
chosen on the 10th, inspected until the 14th, blood ritually spilt. Friends, bones not broken. You weren't allowed to break the bones of the Passover lamb. You would think someone would have wondered all those years, I wonder why we can't break the bones, who cares? We're done with the carcass, we're burying it outside the camp. And this is the day they found out why that was. And you know, very famously, the two thieves had their bones broken and Jesus did not. He was already dead. What an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. I don't recall anyone picking up on it. They didn't break his bones. (laughs) The bones weren't broken. The remains were disposed of outside the camp. They were buried by sundown, promised to redeem all those who are covered in the precious blood of the Lamb. He was buried in the tomb. The eclipse came over the earth. The lights went out in heaven, friends. It was the wrath. No, it was not the wrath. It was the grief of God over the death of his son. And in the death, the voice of Abel's blood was memorialized. The angel of death in the household, households of Egypt struck the firstborn males, but passed over the houses of those who displayed the blood, the blood of the lamb. The Passover was not remembered throughout their history. They forgot it for many years. A little history In Moses' day, it was celebrated a mere two times. Did you know that? And you remember they went into the wilderness for 40 years? They celebrated it twice, and it was not relived again until Joshua's time in Canaan. During the reigns of the kings, you read 1 and 2 Kings, you only see it brought up twice, and that was in times of great revival, when great kings like Hezekiah and Josiah came out and destroyed the high places of the idolatrous worshipers the Baals, right? And they reinstituted the Passover, this great description of the Passover in in Hezekiah's time and in Josiah's time. That's the only two times in all of those years. Then Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon comes in, destroys the city, takes them away into Babylon. For hundreds of years, they remain in captivity. Babylon's overthrown by Persia, but they remain as servants of the Persian government. In all these years, all these centuries, they lose everything about their Jewishness. Certainly all of their rituals, their Sabbaths, their Passovers and festivals. They even lose their language. By the time of Jesus, nobody spoke Hebrew. It was a dead language. They all spoke Aramaic. So you might say, no wonder they forgot. But in the time of Ezra, you remember, they were allowed by the king of Persia to go back into Jerusalem, and one of the first things they did was they celebrated the Passover, Nehemiah, at the same time, right? They came in, they rebuilt the walls, and they started up the services again. And so during all those silent years, what do I mean by that? The years between Persian captivity, the last book is Malachi, right? And in between Malachi In Jesus' times, there's 450 years or so. But in that time, they had been allowed to go back into Jerusalem, and the Passover services had begun again. And so for many years leading up to that faithful Passover, when the true Lamb of God was killed, it was again the centerpiece of Israel's religious life. Friends, if you're very careful in your reading, particularly in the Gospel of John, you'll see that Jesus attended three Passovers. Now we know he attended 33 Passovers because you had to go every year, no matter where you lived in the kingdom. You had to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. 
There was about 600,000 residents of, of Jerusalem and about 2 million came for Passover in that year. And so the Lamb of God was killed. It was again the centerpiece of Israel's religious life. And it became the hinge of all history. If only they had asked, why did John call him the Lamb of God? Paul made it clear when he wrote to the Corinthians. Said it very plainly, and I close with this. Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. O Father, in Jesus' name, renew our thoughts concerning these things and of the careful and meticulous outworking of your prophecies down through the ages, all fulfilled in Christ our Passover, the Lamb of God, sacrificed for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.